You know, I'm pretty sure that all of us are familiar with how finances work in our culture. We go to work, we earn wages or a salary, which we deposit when we get paid into a bank account. And the bank credits that amount of money to our account. But we also have bills to pay, right? And regardless of how we might choose to pay those bills on the front end, debit card, credit card, bill pay, check, cash, online, automatic withdrawals, all the ways we can pay bills today, those funds will eventually come out of our bank account. And when that occurs, the bank debits our account for that amount of money. Now, if we've done an effective job of budgeting and keeping track of our finances, then at the end of the month, if the amount that has been deposited or credited to our account is equal or more than the amount that comes out of our account, then we feel pretty good. But if we're living paycheck to paycheck or we're already behind or if some reason the amount of our paycheck is decreased or our expenses are increased, then you know there's a whole lot of stress that goes along with our finances. Now unfortunately, that model seems to have greatly influenced how many people view the way God deals with us. A lot of people believe that God has a spiritual bank account for each one of us and that every time they do something good, he makes a deposit on their behalf and credits it to their account. Conversely, every time that somebody does something bad, God makes a withdrawal or debits the account. And they assume as long as their deposits are greater than their withdrawals, at the end of their lives, even if a little bit, if the deposits are greater than the withdrawals, then they earn their way into heaven. Now to us we go, no, that's not true. But this illustrates what most people in America believe. A recent study by the Barnett Group, and we've talked about some of these studies over the last few weeks, but a recent study by the Barnett Group found that 72% of the people surveyed, almost three-fourths of the people surveyed in America, believe that it's possible for someone to earn their way into heaven by their good behavior. That's what three-fourths of Americans believe. Good people go to heaven, bad people don't. You hear that all the time. And according to a recent Pew Research study that was done because of the 500th anniversary of the Reformation this last year, they found that fewer than half, that is 46% of Protestants, agree with the Protestant Reformation that faith alone is needed to get into heaven. So 500 after years after the Reformation, Protestants aren't believing the Reformation anymore. More than half of U.S. Protestants, 52%, espouse the historically Catholic doctrine that both good deeds and faith are needed to get into heaven. Well, among U.S. Catholics, this should not be surprising, 81% say good deeds and faith in God are needed to get into heaven, and only 17% of Catholics say salvation comes by faith alone. And as I've said before, over one half of those who identify themselves as born-again Christians believe that works somehow contribute to their salvation. And as we'll see this morning, God indeed does have a spiritual accounting system but fortunately for us, it doesn't work the way that most people think it works. So please turn again, once again, to Romans chapter 4, verse 3 this time, the third verse of Romans chapter 4. Because I want to point out that word that's used over and over again in this passage, the word credits or credited. In your Bible, it might be translated counts or taken into 
taken into account. It's used five times in the passage I read and, and six or seven times in, in the, the whole chapter. Uh, look at verse 3 of Romans chapter 4, speaking of the faith of Abraham, and it was credited to him as righteousness. In verse 4, speaking of the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but what is due. Uh, then in verse 5, to the one who believes God, his faith is credited as righteousness. Uh, verse 6, God credits righteousness apart from works. Verse 8, blesses the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. That's the same word, who will not credit to his account. And then uh, verse 9, speaking of the faith of Abraham, Faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. And then just to finish it off, uh, verse 22 of this chapter, therefore it was also credited to him as righteousness. Now that underlying Greek word that is translated credited or counted or taken into account literally means to enter something into a financial ledger. We've all seen what accountants do. There's a financial ledger. ledger. That's what this word means, to enter it into one's account, to credit it to one's account. And the frequent use of this verb does reveal that God indeed does have a spiritual ledger for each one of us in which he enters debits and credits to our account. But as we've seen so far in Paul's letter, and we'll see confirmed once again this morning, God doesn't do that in the way that most people think God does it or the way the people of Paul's day in Rome thought it was done. In God's spiritual accounting system, your standing with God is dependent on what you receive, not what you achieve. What you receive, not what you achieve. This may very well be one of the most freeing concepts in the entire Bible. Because if you really don't believe this, then you're going to live your life from paycheck to paycheck spiritually. You know, if I don't believe this, I'm going to be constantly stressed out, wondering whether I've done enough deposits, whether I've done enough good things and added to my account to cover the withdrawals that result from my sin. And if I live like that, I could never be sure exactly where I stand with God. And that's not a joyful way to live at all. And just because I've committed my life to Jesus Christ doesn't mean that I'm immune from falling back into that way of thinking. And so in order to illustrate the truth of justification by faith, by faith alone, apart from works, of being in right standing with God, that's what justification means. We are declared righteous. Paul uplifts the father of faith, Abraham. Father Abraham. Abraham illustrates the truth of justification by faith, not by works. So look at verses 1 and 2 of Romans chapter 4 again, beginning at verse 1 of chapter 4. What then shall we say, that Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh, or our human forefather, has found? For if Abraham was justified by works, yes, something to boast about, but not before God. Now what Paul is saying here would have been shocking, even heretical, to first century Jewish ears. And as we've noted, most people who claim to be Christians today will disagree with Paul on the matter. Now, the basic belief of the Jews at the time was that you earned favor with God and that Abraham had earned more favor with God than anybody else in his generation, maybe even anybody else of all time, except maybe for Moses. 
But the message of the gospel, as we have seen in Romans chapter 3, is there is none righteous, no, not one. It's also the message of the Old Testament. No one can earn favor with God. It's the supreme discovery of the Christian gospel that you don't need to try to earn God's favor. You don't need to try to be righteous enough on your own to be accepted by God. You don't need to torture yourself with a losing battle to try to earn God's love and salvation. And Paul chooses Abraham to illustrate this because he was the Jews' favorite illustration of what could be called works righteousness. And Paul is going to turn that works righteousness view on its, on its head. And Abraham's a very good illustration, and Paul wanted to put flesh and blood to what he had been talking about in the first three chapters, that all have sinned, there's none righteous, whether you're Jew, Gentile, whatever you are, all have sinned and what? Fallen short of the glory of God. And so now Paul is going to put flesh on that in the form of Abraham as our illustration. And so Paul attacks those who are opposed to justification by faith at the very point at which they thought they were the strongest, the point of Abraham. That is, if Abraham was not justified by works, then nobody could be. Because they thought Abraham's the best guy possibly that ever lived, at least the best of his generation. They deemed Abraham as, as a righteous guy. So on the one hand, if Abraham was not justified by works, nobody can be. On the other hand, if Abraham didn't need to be justified by works because he was justified by faith, then any man, any woman can be justified by faith. You see the difference? If Abraham was not justified by his works, nobody could be. If Abraham was justified by his faith, then anybody can be. Now in the sermon outline, I called this next point the rumor of Abraham's faith. The rumor. Because what the rabbis taught about Abraham is quite interesting when you compare it to the Old Testament. You wonder if they were even reading the same Bible that, that we read. And so their formula kind of went like this. This is the way they thought of it. They, they pointed to Genesis chapter 26 where God commanded Abraham because he knew Abraham would obey. Because Abraham, God says, obeyed my voice, kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my law. God said Abraham was obedient. In fact, they said God spoke to Abraham, according to Isaiah chapter 41, as my friend. So based upon Abraham's obedience in Genesis chapter 26 and him being called the friend of God by the prophet Isaiah, they determined Abraham earned his way in. That was their, their conclusion. In fact, there's an ancient apocryphal book called Ecclesiasticus, not Ecclesiastes that's in the Bible, Ecclesiasticus. And in that apocryphal book, it teaches that Abraham was given justification, and along with giving justification, he was given the privilege of circumcision because it says he earned his way by his law-keeping. Now, that's an interesting concept because, as you know, Abraham lived hundreds of years before the law was ever given. In fact, Abraham was considered by the rabbis as one of the seven men who, through their own merit, brought back the Shekinah glory, the presence of God, to abide in the tabernacle. Another interesting concept, because Abraham lived hundreds of years before the tabernacle was even built. They got a little carried away with this extolling of the virtues of Abraham, and they said, he began to serve God faithfully at three years of age. 
I, I, I don't know a three-year-old who serves God faithfully. That would really be something. But you might want to note the following words from something called the prayer of Manasseh, quoting, Therefore thou, O Lord, God of the righteous, has not appointed repentance for the righteous, for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who did not sin against thee. Anybody read anything about Jacob lately <laughs> in the Bible? But thou hast appointed repentance for me who is a sinner. So they concluded Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob didn't need to repent because they were not sinners. And then the book of Jubilee, probably dating from the second century B.C., minimizes the weakness of the patriarchs and contains this statement, quote, Abraham was perfect in all his deeds with the Lord and well-pleasing in righteousness all the days of his life. What they had done here, they had built this imaginary man who didn't need to repent, who was perfectly righteous. The Jewish rabbis went so far to teach that Abraham was so good, so righteous, that he had a surplus of merit from his works that his descendants could draw upon. Now, for those who had Roman Catholic background, you don't think that sounds all that strange to what you were taught. There are millions of people today who believe the same kind of thing that you can draw upon the righteousness in the merits of the saints. Mary, mother of the Jesus, or whoever the saints are, they have a surplus of merit. They were so good that their merit is contained in what they call the treasury of merit. And if you go through the right rituals, if you say the right prayers, if you do the right things, you can draw that merit unto yourself. Paul proceeds to show in Romans chapter 4 that this is not so. It's not so at all. It's totally wrong. The Jews have been taught wrong. And what Paul argues about justification by faith is totally shocking to the Jews, and it goes completely against their view of Abraham. So Paul sarcastically points out in verse 2 of Romans chapter 4 that if Abraham was justified by works, then he has something to boast about. Boy, you could really brag it up if you were justified by works, but then he adds, but not before God. But not before God doesn't carry any weight with God, if that, even if that were true, which is it not. God is unimpressed. doesn't carry any weight with God's, and since that is the case, it is wrong. So how does the Apostle Paul support this denial of salvation by works, justification by works, and therefore a denial that Abraham has any right to boast? And, th and this is really good because Paul goes on to present the reality of Abraham's faith as opposed to the false rumors by quoting Scripture. See that in verse 3 of Romans chapter 4? What does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. It was not by works. It was by faith. And how do we know that? He quotes Genesis 15, verse 6. What does the scripture say? What does the Bible say? Go to the word of God. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. <clears throat> so Paul puts Abraham's faith in the foreground and totally throws Abraham's works aside. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Paul repeats this in Genesis, or excuse me, in Galatians chapter 3. You don't need to turn to it. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 6. But, but listen to this. Galatians 3, 6. Even so, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. The same quoting of Genesis 15, 6. 
And later in that chapter, in chapter 3 of Galatians, the same emphasis is made that we are all children, all of us are children of Abraham, verse 7 of Galatians 3. We are all sons of Abraham because we also come by faith and not by works. He ends the chapter in verse 29. If you belong to Christ, you are Abraham's descendants. So Abraham is not the father of those who made, are made righteousness by works, but rather he's the father of those who are made righteous by faith. To Paul and to the Holy Spirit who inspired God's word, the essence of Abraham's testimony, the essence of his witness, the model that he is, the pattern that he is, is simply that he believed God. He believed God. He took God at his word. And we see this illustrated in Hebrews chapter 11, if you'd like to turn over to that. Hebrews chapter 11, that great chapter of the heroes of faith. Beginning at the 8th verse of Hebrews chapter 11. In our homeschool classes, every one of our children memorized the entire 11th chapter of Hebrews. What a, what a great chapter. Here we learn about the faith of Abraham and we see it illustrated by his life. What kind of faith did Abraham have? What did it look like? Verse 8 of Hebrews 11. By faith when he was called, obeyed. By faith Abraham when he was called, he obeyed. Literally, it's, it's a present participle. While Abraham was being called, he obeyed. There was no time between the calling and his obedience. It was all one at the same time. And his obedience is a remarkable thing because it says, while he was being called, he obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. Isn't that remarkable? That's great faith. It's that kind of drop all and follow me faith that we see with the disciples of Jesus Christ. That kind of self-denying faith, that great faith. He forsook everything without anything in return. With no knowledge where he was going, he literally put his life in the hands of God who, who called him. You see, faith is not a leap in the dark. Faith is knowing that God said, go, and trusting him for everything that comes after that. And he believed God to be a secure place to plant his life. To plant his life in God. He left the land of his birth. He forsook his home, his estate, severed ties with those he loved, abandoned present securities for future insecurity. He abandoned everything he knew for everything he didn't know. And verse 9 indicates that his faith was not only instant, but it was patient. Verse 9. By faith he lived in an, as an alien in the land of promise as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise, for he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Now there's something we need to get here. Mark it. To Abraham, God's promise was never fulfilled. Did you ever think of that? Abraham never owned land. He wandered everywhere as a tent dweller. He never really saw the fulfillment of his dreams. He never saw a great nation, never inherited the promised land, never had a fulfillment of his dreams, but he never lost faith in God's promise. And ultimately, he knew that the final promise was heavenly, 
The city which has foundations, whose architect, I always love that when God's called an architect, and builder is God. He was following in faith the way to heaven. Verse 11. By faith, even Sarah herself received ability to conceive even beyond the proper time of life, since she considered him faithful who had promised. You remember, they were both long past childbearing age. I think Abraham was 75 when God first made the promise. He was 100 years old when Isaac was born. God gave him that promised son, Isaac, the son of the covenant. And through Isaac came the nations and, and the promise. And verse 12 was not very complimentary because it calls Abraham good as dead. How many work, good works can a dead guy do? But it shows the faith of Abraham and the faithfulness of God. Verse 11, or verse 12, rather. Therefore there was born even of one man, and him as good as dead at that, as many descendants as the stars of heaven in number, and innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. Remind me of the story of the sweet older couple who decided to get married. They were both widowed, and they'd got to know each other, and just a, a really neat couple. And, and, and one day the older gentleman gingerly got down on his knees, and and he looked up to his beloved, his future bride, and said, I, I have two questions. The first one is, will you marry me? And the bride-to-be said, of course I will marry you. But what is the second question? He said, will you please help me up? <laughs> I had a case of that this morning because my shoulder was sore. I couldn't get my, my, my arm into my overcoat. And Jan said, that's why you have a wife. <laughs> that's why you have a wife. Abraham and Sarah are models of faith, not of works righteousness, a man as good as dead who couldn't do anything good. But now we can go back to Romans chapter 4 and look at verse 3 again. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and was credited to him as righteousness. Credit, counted. Like Jidzomai, to put to one's account, to write it down in the ledger, to credit, to reckon. Righteousness put into an account. Is to say that Abraham believed God and therefore God credited to his account the very righteousness of God. He received it by faith, and that's how all men and women are made righteous before God. It's not because they can become righteous on their own. It's because the righteousness comes to them from God, credited to their account by their faith. If you pulled up the, the sheet, balance sheet on the Christian, and it says righteous, righteous, righteous. How can this be? How can this be? It's because all sin, all your sin was imputed where? To Christ's account. And he suffered for it. He bore it on the cross, including all of Abraham's sin. He bore the sins of all believers through all history. It was counted to Abraham for righteousness. What was? It was simply the act of faith, the faith that Abraham had, Abraham had in God. You know, it was a supernatural faith. It was not a normal faith at all. There, there's no normal human response that says, I'll leave everything for nothing. It's not normal as we, if we read on in Hebrews chapter 11 where, where God asked or told Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, the son of, of, of promise. 
And then Abraham obeyed because he had faith in Romans, or Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17 says, what was Abraham's faith? Why was he obeying to do that? It says because he believed that God could raise people from the dead. He believed that. Had he ever seen it? No. But he believed it. You know, there's such a thing as human faith. We talk about that. You exercise human faith every time you turn on your faucet and you drink whatever comes out. Do you ever think of that? You exercise faith by putting your trust maybe in the water filter. You exercise human faith every day when you get in your car, you turn that key in the ignition, and there's a series of internal combustions that go on, and you don't ever think that that might be a combustion that will blow you into eternity. Same thing you do when you go to the hospital. They knock you out, they operate on you, and you wake up. That's faith, but that's not human faith. And human faith is built on a history of saying that people that, that survived that or went through that, and it indicates that, well, that's something that I, I'm going to trust the doctor here for. You drink the water because you've been drinking the water. You drive the car because you've been driving the car, and lots of people drive the car. You get on the airplane because... Lots of people do that. You have surgery because you've had surgery before and all kinds of people have had surgery and they come out of it. You have a track record that is a valid thing to put your trust in. But there's no track record when it comes to supernatural faith by which our account is credited with the righteousness of God. This is a promise that nobody has ever seen. Abraham didn't see the future at all. He didn't know what he was headed for. He gave up certainty for uncertainty. There was no precedent for this. He hadn't seen nor did he know anyone who had ever been to heaven. And so Abraham lived in hope. All people of faith live in hope. We live in hope. We put all of our trust and all of our faith in something we cannot see. Hebrews 11 verse 1. And this kind of faith, it isn't a natural faith. It's not a human faith. It's a supernatural faith. And how do we get this faith? The Bible says it's really a gift. We can't muster it on our own. We can't do enough things to gain faith. There's all these guys, I was going to call them idiots on TV, that say you can muster your own faith. You can get this, that, and the other thing. And No. Faith is a gift from God. It's a gift of God. It's not something you muster on your own based on your experience. By grace you have saved through faith, and it's not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. The faith that Abraham had in God was empowered in him by God. But not apart from his own willingness and his own obedience. That's our human part. And by faith, Abraham gave up his life. By faith, he denied himself. By faith, he followed and he knew there was nothing in this life that would bring about the promise that he was headed for a city whose architect and builder was God. He was headed for a country that wasn't in this world. It was a heavenly one. And whatever the cost, he trusted God. Trusted him to take him to that place. Trusted God to fulfill his promise. It's the kind of faith that marks the man and the woman who is declared righteous. This was Abraham's salvation. He believed God when there was no precedence, no evidence, no sight. It was all promise unfulfilled. This is the illustration of justification by faith. I like the way John MacArthur put it. He says, justification by faith means you believe God for forgiveness you can't see, 
You believe God for a heaven you've never been to. You believe God for an eternal reward you've never received. You believe God for eternal bliss and joy you've never experienced. Then he adds, that's not normal. (laughs) That's not normal. Of course it's not, because it's faith. And I want to briefly close with the results of Abraham's faith in Romans chapter 4, verses 6 through 8. Paul quotes the psalmist David and he recounts the blessings of God crediting to our account faith and righteousness. Romans chapter 4, beginning at verse 6. Just as David also speaks of the blessings on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from the works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. In these verses, Paul reveals three great results that become ours when we trust in Jesus Christ for salvation. They're definitely worth noticing as we conclude here. First of all, in verse 7, sins are forgiven. Literally, the word means sent away. Those of you who have studied the word aphesis, aphiome, means it's a forgiveness for its it's sent away, it's, it's released. In a very real sense, when we receive Jesus Christ as our Savior, our sins are removed from our lives. Where the scriptures say, as far as the east is from the west, they are cast from us. Why didn't he say, as far as the north is from the south? Because if you go north far enough, when you get to the North Pole, then you're going south. When you go east, you're always going east. When you're going west, you're always going west. As far as the east is from the west, our sins have been removed from our lives. The psalmist says they are cast into the depths of the sea. Our sins are totally sent away. Secondly, he says our sins are covered. And the word for covered here means covered so completely they can never be uncovered. The blood of Jesus is so powerful that it covers all sins. Present Past, future, all have been covered if your faith is in Jesus Christ. You know, and by the way, this is why I believe I'm saved forever. If my future sins can send me to hell, then I'm not really saved at all, am I? No. It's either one, all or none. And all means all. I remember in Romans class at Central Baptist Seminary, Somebody asked Dr. Unmack when we're studying the word all in, in one of these passages in Romans. They said, Dr. Unmack, what does all mean in the Greek? <laughs> and he said, all. <laughs> all. Simple, simple answer. All those years of study, he knew what all meant. And lastly, sins are not counted against you. They are not taken into account in any way whatsoever. Not credited to your account and treated accordingly. It means that once you trust Jesus Christ for salvation, your sins will never be credited to your account. Never, ever credited. Why not? Because they've already been credited to Christ's account. God who made him, God made him who knew no sin to what? To be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. As we prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper, that is what we are celebrating. That at the cross of Jesus Christ, he took all of our sin, all of our iniquity upon him. 
And when we believe in Christ, we are credited with the righteousness of Christ. It's called the great exchange. All of my sin for all of his righteousness. How do we get that? By faith. By believing. By trusting in him. Shall we pray? Father, as we've talked about this today and as Paul seemed to repeat himself over and over and keep saying the same thing, we know that it's something that, that by your Holy Spirit you want us to understand, Father. And I, I pray that, Father, when we are tempted to fall back into that works righteousness thing, Lord, that uh, your Holy Spirit would, would come to us and, and show us from your word and in other ways, Lord, that... Uh, Yes, we will obey you. We will do good deeds, Father, but it's because of our faith that you have given us, Lord. Father, I pray that we would be freed completely and totally from this works righteousness thing, Lord, and that we would trust fully and completely in the blood of Jesus Christ and his sacrifice for us. And we ask this, in Jesus' name.